Father, thanks for a moment to be still as we can run a frantic pace throughout our life and our week, and it's good just to sit and just be still. And in that stillness, Father, we ask that your spirit would come, make the resurrected Christ present this morning as we look at your story, the true story of the world. Would you help us see the things we need to see, hear the things we need to hear, be transformed and changed into the likeness of your son. God, we're desperate for you to do it this morning. We ask uh, that you would be with us, meet us in a unique way. We pray it in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. Good to see you, Redemption Peoria. My name's John. I'm one of the the pastors here, if you're new, we're thankful that you're here. Uh, let me encourage you really quick, just I know Bethany announced the rhythms class that's going to take place uh, starting next week for the four weeks. We do that every other month. And so if you are new and you're looking to get plugged into a family, the church family here, uh, let me really encourage you to go to that. Um, it, it really clears up the expectations of what we're doing and why we're doing it. And so if you kind of bypass that and you find yourself here consistently and you go like, well, why are they doing that? Like, it's because you didn't go to the rhythms course. So um, let me just encourage you. Again, if you are new, sign up for that. There, I, I think there's about 17 people that are already signed up. So you get to meet new people that are somewhat new here to the body. Uh, and also you do really get a clear explanation of why we do the things we do intentionally the way uh, we roll out Sundays and the rest of our week. So uh, let me just encourage you to do that. Um, I mentioned last week that my wife and I have really good friends in Miami, and uh, often we go see them. I don't know if you've been to Miami before. It's lush and beautiful and green, and there's water. It's not like here. And, uh, and we, the first time we went there, they work at the University of Miami, have been there for about 20 years working there. Uh, and the first time I went on campus, you pull up, and there's like a parking space, and there's some residential housing uh, for students and staff. And then about 20 years ago, they built a bridge. It is a 200-foot bridge, and it actually connects from that kind of parking residential space all the way directly to kind of the central part of campus, the middle of campus. You can see the bridge there, uh, and it crosses the lagoon before you'd have to kind of walk around and kind of take another way, and this is like a direct route. And not only is the bridge practical and helpful, but it's actually symbolic of the idea of you can have a direct route to your education. And what the Miami, uh, University of Miami is trying to sell you and help you understand is, man, this is the pathway for your next part of life. And what's interesting about this bridge is there's an inscription moving from the parking lot as you head towards the central part of campus. And this is the inscription. If you go up and you can look at this quote, this is from um, a poem called Invictus. And it says this, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. So what the University of Miami is trying to tell you is as you cross over to this new way of learning and being educated, that you actually are the master of your fate. You're the captain of your own soul. Don't let anybody tell you any different. You step into that space and you grow and you learn and you take life by the horns because you're the captain of your own soul. You're the master of your own fate. And if you're familiar with the story of Jesus in the Bible, like there's nothing further from the truth of that if you're a Christian. Now, God gives us autonomy because he loves us. He gives us choice. He gives us opportunity. But to bow your knee to the king of the universe in Jesus is to relinquish you being the captain of your own soul and the master of your own fate. 
And that's actually what we're going to see in our text this morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it. It's not already open to 1 Samuel chapter 24. As we walk through the next chunk of this series called We Want a King, we've been looking at the first three kings of the Old Testament and a man named Saul, a man named David, and a man named Solomon. And as Saul's reign is coming down, crashing down, as we even saw last week if you were with us, David is rising to the kingdom. He's been anointed, but he hasn't yet taken power. Saul is still in power as the king of Israel. And the question we're going to be hoping to answer this morning of this kind of this big idea of what the text is going to be driving us to is this question, but I think is helpful for us, is are you taking matters into your own hands or are you putting matters in God's hands? Are you taking matters into your own hands or are you putting matters in God's hands? Are you listening to the quote on that bridge and you're kind of going like, life is mine, let me take it, or are you saying, no, I actually want to put it in God's hands. So, again, let's walk through. Um, really, it's chapter 24, 25, and 26 are on a, kind of bunched together in the narrative. We're only going to be looking at chapter 24 for sake of time this morning. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through um, these 22 verses. We're going to read them. I'll give some cultural context, and then we'll say, well, how does this apply to us today? What does this actually mean for our lives? So, 1 Samuel chapter 24. For starting in verse 1, it says this. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness and in Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rock. So Saul takes 3,000 men. David has about 600 men at the time, but Saul's uh, going by five to go after David. He's continually pursued David. If you're joining us in the story for the first time, Saul recognizes that his power might be taken away, and so he's threatened by the life of David, even though David has done nothing but goodness to Saul. And in that threat, he starts to unwind. He starts to try and be the captain of his own soul, and so he's trying to eliminate David. He's trying to kill him. This is another iteration of that happening. Verse 3, and he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. That phrase relieve himself in the original language actually means to cover your feet. So Saul is going in, he's taking a number two. So, uh, uh, and he doesn't know David's in the cave. He's just going in and he's in a most vulnerable moment uh, by himself. But the end of verse 3 says, now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. So Saul thinks he's by himself. He goes in to do his business, and David and his men are at the back of the cave, and they recognize that. Verse 4, and the men of David said to him, here's the day which the Lord said to you. Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose stealthily, cut off the corner of Saul's robe, and afterward David's heart struck him. Because he had cut the corner of Saul's robe, and he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words, and they did not permit them to attack Saul. And so Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Verse 8, Afterward, David also rose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked at him, behind at him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of the men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some 
told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out the hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and I did not kill you, you may know and see that there was no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. Verse 12, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the Proverbs of ancient says, out of the wicked comes wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom the king of Israel has come out. After whom do you pursue? A dead dog after a flea? A dead dog was Hebrew for kind of this expression of like, there's no good here. David said, you're bringing 3,000 men. Don't you know I'm not trying to kill you? You're wasting all these resources for what? To come after me. I'm like a dead dog. I'm even like a flea. I'm not coming after you, Saul. Do you see that? Do you recognize that? Pick it up in verse 15. It says, may the Lord, this is David continuing to say to Saul, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plea my cause and deliver me from your hand. Let's see Saul's reaction to what David tells him and shows him in verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me. And that you did not kill me when the Lord put you into my hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you surely shall be king. And the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me. And that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. So this is the first time in the story we see Saul kind of recognizing David's good, recognizing that David is actually going to be the next king. And as he recognized that, even weeps in a moment of repentance, just for a moment, because of course he's going to try and kill him again two chapters later. In that moment, he is brought to repentance by David's kindness and his actions. And in that, he says, listen, I recognize you're going to be the king. And would you please not wipe out my line? Because in this tradition, in the, in the ancient Near East, what would happen is if uh, the kingship would be transferred not to the son or the next line in the king, what the next king would do, he would eliminate everybody. He would kill everybody. And what Saul is saying, please don't do that to my family. Here's what David's response is in verse 22. And David swore this to Saul that he would not wipe out his family, which is he actually holds to that as you continue to read the story. And then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. There's a couple things we need to recognize here in the midst of this text, in the midst of this story that will be helpful for us. The first is found in verse 1. If you flip back to the very beginning of the chapter, where do we find David? We find him in the wilderness. Now, most scholars think that David was on the run from Saul maybe about seven years. We don't have the exact number because the story doesn't tell us exact dates. But the best estimation is about seven years where David is running from Saul trying to kill him. 
We don't know where this takes place in that seven-year span. I assume somewhere in the middle, maybe somewhere in the end. Uh, We don't know. But David is continually on the run, and where he runs is the wilderness. It's helpful for us to realize that uh, the, the idea of wilderness is a theme throughout the Bible. If you're not familiar with the Bible, it comes up time and time and time again. And it's helpful for us to go, if we're trying to follow the truth of the story of God, what does wilderness mean? Wilderness means a couple different things, and I think it means a couple different things for David. The first thing we find about wilderness is that uh, God uses the wilderness for our shaping and molding. He continues to do this in the life of David. He continues to do this in the life of a lot of leaders, especially in the Old Testament. You see, Joseph has this dream that he is going to rule over his brothers, and he goes into a 13-year wilderness experience where he gets sold into slavery, and then he gets wrongly accused, and then all these things happen to him. To what? Mold him and shape him to eventually be the second in charge of all of Egypt. It takes 13 years for that molding and shaping to happen. It happens in the wilderness. We see this in the story of Moses. If you guys know that story, he, gets, he flees after trying to take vengeance in his own hands. He ends up murdering somebody in Egypt and he runs and goes into the wilderness and God shapes him and molds him as a shepherd. And then where does he meet him? In the wilderness. We see this again in the life of David as he's running for his life. Uh, unfairly, he's in a wilderness experience. We see this in the life of Jesus, even in the incarnation, that he leaves heaven, which is comfortable, and he comes down to earth, which would be a wilderness experience for him. But then when he starts his public ministry, he gets baptized. The Lord speaks identity over him. And then what's the next scene? Goes into the wilderness to be tested. He's led into the wilderness by the Spirit is what the text says. We see this in the New Testament in Paul. Paul has this radical encounter with Jesus. He's killing Christians, and Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus, knocks him off his horse in his grace and beauty, and then what does he do? He actually sends him to the desert for three years. Paul doesn't start right away teaching and preaching. He actually gets formed and shaped in the wilderness. Not only does God use the wilderness for our shaping and our molding, but he actually reveals himself in the wilderness. Again, we see this in Exodus chapter 3 where Moses encounters God at what? A burning bush in the wilderness. Exodus 19, when God's people are roaming the wilderness, when they go to Mount Sinai and God gives them the commandments, the way to live, it's in the wilderness. God provides direction and provision in the wilderness as his people are wandering. He provides direction with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He provides provision with the manna every single day. He provides for his people to remind them where they get their sustenance is not in their own efforts, but in God. Where do we see John the Baptist, who's the forerunner for the gospel right before Jesus shows up on the scene? Where does he live? In the wilderness. Where does Jesus go away to pray? In Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 5, he goes to the wilderness. Where does Jesus feed the multitudes, which is an echo of that manna experience for God's people? He does it in the wilderness. The wilderness is a theme that runs throughout the entirety of the Bible. Do you find yourself in a wilderness experience like David? Right? Because of the brokenness of the world and because where we live, often we will find ourselves in wilderness experiences, things that are uncomfortable, things that are unfair, we don't like them. And if you're not in a wilderness experience right now, you will be. 
just wait long enough and do enough life with people, you will find yourself in some type of wilderness experience. You know, I grew up on the 80s uh, TV shows. Um, and one of the things about 80s TV shows is the theme songs, right? You people that watch 80s TV, man, like there's trivia you can do, like 80s theme songs. And like my kids are like, what is this? And we're like, this is great. And we can name all the theme songs and sing all the theme songs. Well, now, like because everything's streaming, there's that skip intro button. My kids never listen to any theme song, and they're like really tiny and short. They just skip over it every time. They go, oh, Dad, don't make me listen to the theme song. It's so dumb. Like, you listen to the theme song. This is it. You need to be formed by this, right? So they skip over that. Or commercials, you can just fast forward the commercial, which is, again, I appreciate in the streaming service. But so often, because we have that fast forward button, that's how we want to treat life. And that's how we want to treat our wilderness. Man, God, get me through this. Like, let me just bypass this as fast as possible because it's painful, it's disorienting, I'm not sure how to handle it. And because of our culture, man, we live in a fast-forward culture in our life. And everybody will tell you, if you have the chance to skip the intro, to fast-forward your pain and your hurt, you do it. Like, why would you sit in that? That doesn't make any sense. And as we continue to hit the fast-forward button of our wilderness experience, it's it's not shaping us the way God wants to shape us. Like there's something that God can do in the wilderness experience that if we bypass because we're putting things in our own hand, we're missing things. David has a chance to fast forward his experience right now in this text. He's sneaking up. Uh, all his guys are like, listen, this is your chance. Go kill him. This is your fast forward button. And what does he do? He starts to move in and he gets struck by the spirit and he goes, actually, this isn't it. He knows he's going to be king. He's been anointed as king. He's been running. Saul's been chasing him. He has the chance to fast forward this whole thing, go right to the throne. David, why wouldn't you do this? This doesn't make any sense not to kill Saul. I was talking to my dad yesterday on the phone who, some of you guys know, he's an atheist and we have lots of conversations about religion. Um, at one point he was a pastor and he goes, what are you preaching tomorrow? And I said, it's first, first Samuel 24. And he goes, oh, yeah, 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 when David's in the cave. Like, I don't understand why he didn't kill Saul. That doesn't make any sense to me. I was like, Dad, you should watch tomorrow. You could, I mean, he lives in Texas. So I'm like, I think there's a reason that he doesn't do it. But it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense why David wouldn't fast forward over that experience and take matters into his own hands. I love if we really sit in the midst of our wilderness, in the midst of our pain, and allow God to show us what he can do. Psalm 107, which again, David writes lots of these psalms as he's on his wilderness experience away and journaling kind of his thoughts and emotions. Psalm 107, starting in verse 35, says this, talking about what God can do in the midst of a wilderness experience. It says, he turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards, and they get fruitful yield by his blessing they multiply greatly and he does not let their livestock diminish do you know that god can turn your desert into a garden that if you trust him in your wilderness experience and not try and fast forward it that actually he can produce something in a dry place that doesn't look like it should produce anything as you trust god he can do that in the desert but many times we want to fast forward that experience we just want to get through it if we're honest with ourselves. It's too painful. It's too hard. 
And a lot of us, our wilderness experiences are circumstantial. Maybe you've fallen out of a job. Maybe you've fallen on hard times financially. Uh, There's circumstances that happen that can equate to a wilderness experience. But the hardest types of wilderness experiences, which is what we see in our story today, are the relational ones. Right? Somebody has hurt you. Somebody has said something to do something to you. They've wronged you. They've betrayed you. And you go, what am I supposed to do with that? Which is what happens in the story. Saul's continually pursuing David, and David hasn't done anything but bless Saul, and he's out to kill him. And now David has the chance to get back at his enemy, to eliminate this type of wilderness relationally, and he doesn't do it. How do we not take matters into our own hands if we have that opportunity, but we put them in God's hands? What does that even look like for us to do in the midst of our relational wilderness? One example I think that's been helpful that kind of models the life of David as a Christian recently, and it came out in 2015, if you're familiar with uh, what happened with the U.S. gymnastics team, the women's gymnastics team, and the sex abuse scandal. And Rachel Dolander is the first woman that stepped out to accuse Larry Nassau, who was the team doctor for 18 years. And as the team doctor for 18 years, he took his power and he chose to abuse it. He did that for 18 years to young women and young children as he sexually abused them as a doctor. Nobody said anything for so long. And then Rachel stepped to the plate and said, this is not okay. And it has to stop. And if you're familiar with Rachel's story, if you saw any of the clips that were kind of coming out all the time in 2015 with this scandal, you see that Rachel has a faith in Jesus. She's a Christian. But when you have the conversation with her, when it's written about her right now, she goes, the thing that bothers me most about what was happening in 2015 with the trial and everything is that people would constantly quote that I've forgiven Larry. And man, that's a powerful thing. She stands up on the stand and she says, even the things you've done to me, I still forgive you, Larry. But she goes, that's the only thing they quote. And what she says and what we're going to read here is uh, there's a reason she could forgive him because of what she believes about the justice of God. This is what she says, and uh, this quote is in, in partial. You can read the whole thing or watch, uh, watch it online. Um, and, and Larry has a Bible with him in the courtroom. Listen to what she says to him about the full scope of God's justice in her wilderness. It says, the Bible you speak of, she's talking to Larry, carries a final judgment where all God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. You should ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done. The guilt will be crushing. And that that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Larry, I can call you what, well, I can call what you did evil and wicked because it was. And I know it was evil and wicked because the straight line exists. The straight line is not measured based on your perception or anyone else's perception. And this means I can speak truth about my abuse without minimization or mitigation. I can call it evil because I know what goodness is. And this is why I pity you. 
Because when a person loses the ability to find good and evil, when they cannot define evil, they can no longer define and enjoy what truly is good. When a person can harm another human being, especially a child, without true guilt, they have lost the ability to truly love. Larry, you have shut off yourselves from every truly beautiful and good thing in this world that could have and should have brought you joy and fulfillment. I pity you for it. You could have had everything you pretended to be. Now, a couple of observations about Rachel's comments that kind of tether what David is doing even in the back end when he approaches Saul and calls out to Saul. The first is that her personal forgiveness as well as David, it doesn't mean abandoning justice. Right? She just doesn't say, Larry, I forgive you and don't worry about it. She says, Larry, I forgive you and I know that God is a God of justice, but also I'm going to testify against the wrong that you did. And she does testify. She doesn't abandon justice in the process. And because of that, Larry Nassau is in prison for life. Another interesting observation in what she says to him is that personal forgiveness, it doesn't minimize the hurt and the pain. She doesn't say, well, I forgive you. It's no problem. Don't worry about it. She's still talking about her pain. She's still talking about the hurt. And sometimes we have this idea of if we're forgiving or putting uh, uh, the things that we're worried about in God's hands instead of our own hands, that it just like it wipes away the pain. No. Like we live with scars as people that have been hurt. And the third thing that I think is worth mentioning here, and also what David does with Saul, is that their personal forgiveness is rooted. It's rooted in putting justice in God's hands. We see this in 1 Peter 2 when Peter is encouraging the church that's dealing with suffering. And they're under people that are abusing their power and they're suffering for it. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 21. He's talking about Jesus and he says, For this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. Jesus is the ultimate example of this. He doesn't repay. He hasn't done anything but bless people. And now he's being accused and he's being tortured. And he doesn't return evil with evil. Instead, he entrusts to him who judges justly. He entrusts himself to the Father. It's not about getting personal revenge when you're in a wilderness relationally. It's about trusting the ultimate judge. Romans 12 says it this way. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, that's proud, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceable with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God for it is written vengeance is mine I will repay says the Lord I recently just finished watching a show on Amazon Prime some of you may have watched this it's called The Terminal and The Terminal it, it's super intense it's super intense both in its scene and its language and its violence and so it, it, I'm not suggesting you watch it it might not be your cup of tea you might not like it I've got some friends that um, they love boba tea 
and they, they're all about boba tea. And I'm not, that's not for me. I just feel like it's like watered down milk with like gushers inside that catch you off guard when you drink it. Like, I don't, I don't like it, but they love it. So all that to say, you might not want to watch the terminal. It might be too intense for you, again, both in language and violence. But the reason it's so intense, there's a reason. It's because the story centers around Chris Pratt, Chris Pratt who's the character, the lead character. He's a Navy SEAL. And I'm not going to give it away, but at the very beginning, uh, there's an op that gets blown and he comes back to America and they're trying to figure out what happened and they're, they're trying to figure out what's going on with him, even medically. And in the midst of it, something tragic happens to his family, his wife and his daughter. And as you continue the series, it's eight, eight episodes long. Uh, what Chris Pratt's character does is he goes and he seeks vengeance for what he thinks are the people that did this to his family. And he takes matters into his own hands, very capable hands, as he's trained to kill. He's a Navy SEAL. And at one point, even there's an FBI, there's a scene with an FBI agent, and he's trying to negotiate and help uh, his character go like, this isn't the way. Like, th there's another way for vengeance. And Pratt's character looks at him and says, I am vengeance. And the surprising thing after watching that show, there's a couple things that surprised me about it. One, I, I, was, I was kind of shocked that I was so happy when vengeance did happen. Like, I'm sitting there on the couch, like, clapping, like, as he kills somebody. Because I'm going, yes, there's something in me, and I think there's something in you that wants justice. We want evil eradicated. But the other thing that was surprising to me as I watched the show, and as you see the character arc of his character, as he seeks vengeance and executes vengeance, it doesn't heal him. It doesn't solve the problem. He actually starts to erode even worse if you really follow the character and you're really paying attention. And so what God is telling us and what David is doing is going like, listen, um, don't seek vengeance on your own. Even if you have the opportunity to execute vengeance, it actually won't be helpful for you because the best place to give vengeance is not in your own hands, is in God's hands. In the midst of a relational wilderness that you're in with somebody. That you go, man, I should get that person back. They are doing me so wrong. And now I have the opportunity to say something, to do something to them. And God's saying, don't do it. What does that even look like? How do we even do that? What do we see David do when you've been so wounded, you've been so hurt? How do you release justice into God's hands instead of holding it in your own hand? Well, we see what happens in, in verse 5, uh, I think is a pivotal piece of this story. When David goes, his men are kind of going, this is your chance. Go get him. Go get him. And he goes and he creeps over and he cuts off the corner of the robe. Verse 5 says his heart is struck within him. Or the NIV says conscience struck. The reason that David doesn't execute what he thinks is justice or his men thinks justice and he puts it in God's hand is because he's in tune with God's spirit. He listens to God's spirit and God's spirit strikes him in that moment. Now, for you, when you're in your wilderness experience and you have an opportunity to kind of right the wrong right in front of you and people are going, like, this is what you need to do. You need to prove them wrong. And if you follow the Spirit, and he goes, whoa, 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 stop. Stop. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you know that feeling inside of you when the Spirit convicts you, when he prompts you, when he does something, that you're taking steps to kind of hold things in your own hand. He goes, no, 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 this is not the way to do this. When that happens, what do you do? Do you ignore it? Do you ignore that prompting? Do you follow that prompting? And like sometimes I just ignore it and I'm disobedient to God. And then sometimes I follow it. 
And every time I ignore it, it does not go well. And every time I follow it, even if it doesn't make sense for me in the moment, God chooses to use it. So it really is about our humble attitude, just like we see David. We saw Saul throughout the story that God sends people to kind of help him, to warn him. And what does he do? He goes, no, 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 I'm not listening to any of that. And he continues to take matters in his own hands. And it totally unravels for him. And we see David doing the opposite. God sends people to warn him. The Spirit warns him and he obeys. How does he do that? I love Psalm 142. Most scholars think that uh, this is the psalm that David writes right after this experience in 1 Samuel 24. Gets out of this experience and then he goes to his journal, I don't know, quill, scroll, I don't know what it was at the time, right? Like he's not on his iPhone. He writes something down to kind of process his feelings and emotions. Listen to what he says in Psalm 142, 1 through 5. He says, with my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. Some of us don't feel like we can be honest enough with God to complain, to to say, this is not okay. I don't feel good about this. And David is saying, no, you have to be honest with God in your wilderness experience. Verse 3, when my spirit faints within me, you know my way. Have you been in that spot relationally in your wilderness where you can't even stand? Can you be honest with that? And can you go, God still knows the way. I'm fainting, but God knows the way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Verse 4, look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Have you been there before? In a relationship, in a wilderness where you look to the right, to the left, and nobody seems to be understanding what you're saying and you're feeling like nobody is with me on this. It doesn't make sense. This is how David feels in this moment. Even as his guys are saying, kill him, get him. He's going, I'm looking to the right and to the left. I'm, I'm alone in this thing. But then what does he say in verse 5 is the antidote. He says, I cry to you, O Lord. I say you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. What's David's antidote to his wilderness relationally? It's prayer. He cries out to the Lord in prayer. He says, you are my portion. I don't get my portion from what other people think of me. I don't get my portion from vindicating myself. I don't get my portion from my circumstances. I get my portion from you. Everything else will be fleeting. You can chase all those other things time and time again. And we do it even as Christians. But until we come back to the fact that we need to pray and cry out to God and say, God, even in the midst of my circumstances, you are with me. You are my portion. You're my portion. I challenge you guys as you live this next week and you get into circumstances where you're confused and you're frustrated and you feel relationally bound and you go, God, you are my portion. You're my portion. Would you help me believe that? Would you help me live that? That's where you will find freedom. That's where David finds freedom. And he doesn't put vengeance in his own hands, but he passes it off to God and says, God, you're my portion. You know the way. Help me understand it. That's why we're trying to focus on prayer in in the midst of our community. We have a prayer space. We have prayer cards. It's not because prayer is the right thing to do and this is what Christians do. It's because we're desperate. 
We're desperate for God to use us, to understand us, to, to know what we're supposed to do in our relational trials in our wilderness. And that does not come apart from praying and crying out to God in a spirit of humility saying, God, I need you. We got to stop doing this American Christianity thinking we can figure it all out on our own and we just need Jesus for heaven. We need to be desperate every single moment because we're called to be light in a dark place. And for many of us in our Christian life, we haven't moved to maturity in that, going like, okay, I know what it means to be freed. Because when God is your portion, you're now freed up to love that person that hurt you. And tell that, you can't do it. You try and try and try to do these things. Some of them are good. But until you go, okay, God, you're my portion. Now you are freed up to love those people that have hurt you, which is what God tells us to do. And not holding things in your own hand, but putting it in God's hands. Practical example of this. I love um, my coworkers at Redemption Tempe. Jim Mullins uh, is a master at loving people that have wronged him. If you know Jim, you would understand that. And during 2020, the year 2020, when COVID was hitting and everybody's trying to figure out what church looks like, what they decided to do at Tempe is they um, have, their campus is kind of backed up to a football field because there's a private school that meets on their campus. And so they decided, okay, because of COVID and nobody's known, we're going to go outside for service. So they went outside for service and kind of spread themselves out and things like that. And they started having services in the evenings for their church. Well, a couple weeks into it, um, there were some teenagers that decided to drive on the football field with their trucks and just do donuts. I don't even know if they knew there was a church meeting there. I think they were just being kids. And they were just being rambunctious. And so they're driving, they're doing donuts. They do about $800 damage to the field. And it means they really can't meet there. They have to make adjustments there. So... The pastors at Redemption Tempe find out who it is. These kids get caught. And so they bring him in on a Saturday morning to talk to them. Here's what Jim and the staff decided to do. Instead of repaying evil for evil, here's what they did. They cooked them a breakfast. So they cooked them this huge breakfast. Uh, the teenagers walked in and they were kind of like taken off guard of like, okay, what are you trying to do to me here? Like this is, I don't know how I feel about this, right? So they ate, they cooked, they got to know them a little bit and they said, here's what we're going to do. There's about $800 damage to the field. We're going to take care of that damage. Here's also what it's going to do. And they had eight envelopes on a table. Each envelope had $100 in it. It says, here's what we're asking you to do to be a part of this. It said, this envelope right here, this is $100. We want you to go and we want you to bless one of your teachers at your high school. This envelope here has $100. We want you to take it. I want you to bless somebody that's homeless that you see. And start to have a conversation with them. Don't just give them the money. Go out and feed them and have a conversation with them. This $100, we want you to bless somebody that has special needs in your high school. And they just went down the line. And then the last $100, they said, here's what we want you to do. This is actually for you guys to have fun. Legally. Like, don't do anything illegally, right? Like, and as they tell the story, like, you could see what was happening in the teenagers that were skeptical and kind of like, okay, they're going to give me a lecture. And, like, uh, and they just melted. Because when God is your portion, and you cry out to him in the midst of your wilderness relationally, you can now move from that space of I have to get even or I have to be neutral, ah, and you can start to bless the people that hurt you. And that's what they did, and I love that story. What would it look like for us as Redemption Peoria to be a community that plotted kindness instead of plotting revenge? 
What would that look like if we lived that way with the people that have harmed us, that have hurt us? This is what David does in the text. Even as you see the back end, what David does is he comes out and he has the corner of the robe. He speaks with kindness. He bows his body and he speaks with kindness and reverence to Saul. And that kindness does what? It leads to Saul's repentance. It leads to Saul's emotional breakdown in a good way. Again, for a season. Verse 22, I think the last verse is helpful for us to note here in the midst of it. I love that the narrator includes it. If you have a Bible, again, it says, And David swore this to Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. What does this tell us about when we're in relational wilderness? Is that David doesn't go with Saul. There's still trust problems. David is wise enough to go, okay, you are abusing me. You're seeking to kill me. You're seeking to take my life. I forgive you. I don't put justice in my own hands. I put it in the hands of the Lord, but I'm not going with you. And for some of us in the room that have been abused by people, we're still called to forgive them and love them and put justice in God's hands, but we can put up appropriate boundaries. David has the understanding of attunement, of understanding what's going on, but he also has containment of going, I'm not going to stay with you, and that's okay. Because David's wise enough to go, like, Saul's repentant right now. But again, in two more chapters, he's seeking to kill him. I think that's helpful for us to know in the midst of how do we hand over people that are hard for us. You can still have appropriate distance and still love. A lot of us need to do that. Well, what is the invitation this morning as we kind of close is this idea of really asking the question, are you taking matters into your own hands? Are you putting them in the hands of God? David had an opportunity to fast forward his wilderness experience to take matters in his own hands, and he doesn't do it. He puts them in the hands of God. And David, as we saw on the very end of the text, he's kind to Saul, and it leads his enemy Saul to repentance. And the ultimate kindness is actually found at the cross. And it leads us to repentance. If you really understand the sacrifice Jesus makes for you, if you're a Christian, it should lead you to repentance. The kindness that Jesus is saying, I'm going to take the sacrifice on your behalf. And the love and the shame that melts away because of Jesus' sacrifice, it should lead us to repentance. When we respond, we should come with humble hearts, leading, going like, yes, thank you for your kindness. But not only does the cross display the ultimate act of kindness, Ultimate justice is found at the cross too. And that's why we can trust God. That's why we can worship God because we know something that's been done wrong to us is we hand it over to God. We know that God will execute justice. He is a just God. He will wipe evil away eventually and that should cause us to worship. That we know our pain is going somewhere and it might be going on the person of Jesus. So that's why we get to worship this morning. As God's love and his kindness leads us to repentance and his execution of Jesus leads us to knowing he will execute justice and evil will be done away with at the end of the day. There's no other God that's like that. There's no other religion that finds that. We fight it in Jesus. And it ought to be refreshing for us to go, okay, I'm not going to hold this in my hand. God, I'm going to give it to you. Let's be people that way. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for the truth and the goodness of your love for us. Thanks like David, we have the ability to cry out to you in our wilderness. And God, that you are our portion. I pray for us that know you, 
God, would you make it more real to us? Would you continue to change us by the power of your spirit that when the spirit convicts us or prompts us, we will not ignore him, but we will lean in and obey. Help us do that this week. We ask it in your name. Amen.